Welcome to the VoxGig podcast. We talk to people in the developer community about developer relations, public speaking, and community events. For more details, visit voxgig.com slash podcast. All right, let's get started. Today, we take a look at the hardware world, which as it turns out, also relies on developer relations to sell stuff. In fact, hardware engineers may have even more power than us software people do. My guest is Zach Peterson, an electronics design consultant and conference speaker. He also runs a highly successful YouTube channel for one of his clients, Altium. We talk about the strategy of developer first and how you use that to build top of your funnel. We talk about how developer experience is just as important in hardware as it is in software. You're going to find this interview an interesting, different perspective on the world of developer relations. Let's talk to Zach. Hey, Zach, welcome to the Fireside with VoxGig podcast. You are a uh, kind of an unusual guest for us because you are a hardware guy. So please just tell us, what do you do? Yes, I, I am a hardware guy. We say uh, hardware is hard, um, but is. that doesn't mean software <laughs> is easy. <laughs> and it isn't. <laughs> yeah, um, so I'm, I'm a hardware guy. Um, I think one time when I was younger, um, I had it in my head that uh, being a software person would be pretty cool. Um, I first did any kind of programming when I was 10 years old. I was in third grade. Um, maybe I was a little younger than 10. But anyways, um, that was when I uh, was first introduced to QBasic, um, doing foreign while loops, teaching the computer how to count. So that was pretty cool. Um, and then uh, later when I was in high school, learned C, C++. And then um, eventually wanted to do a degree in physics um, when I was in uh, college. Um, so yeah, did, did my degree in physics and, um, that's, uh, really where I started to get into things like materials and, uh, semiconductors. Um, so I did my PhD research in a topic called random lasers and had to do some scripting in a mathematical program for that. Um, so that brought me back to, uh, hardware or not hardware, sorry, but, um, software development concepts in order to create programs that can actually take your data, analyze it, fit it to a model, give you some insights as to what's going on in your experiments. Um, and then after, uh, doing that, um, I, you know, it kind of went aimlessly for a couple of years and then eventually, um, got into the electronics industry and, um, the electronics industry is interesting because uh, you do have these intersections between uh, software developers and people who build physical devices. And I mean, of course, anybody who's ever opened up a computer knows that um, the software has to exist somewhere. So it exists on electronics and it exists you know, in these devices that, that folks like myself build. Um, I think what most people aren't familiar with is is how you get that code to live somewhere in a device, um, including a very small device that doesn't look anything like a computer. And yet it does a lot of that same stuff that you would expect a computer to do. So, um, you know, I got started doing uh, some small projects, really consultative stuff. And then eventually it, it grew in size and scope of, of projects and um, then I started working with uh, Altium and uh, some other companies in the electronics industry directly. And so most people know me from from working with Altium. Um, we do technical content generation for them, uh, strategy, research, helping with R&D, um, really providing um, a lot of that top of funnel type of technical content that engineers really need to stay sharp 
and um, to really understand how to use the tool, but really more application driven. It's not like, you know, feature tutorials. Um, so hardware developers are always learning. They always have uh, something new that they have to learn, some new challenge that they have to, to overcome. And I think that's pretty similar with software developers. Um, software developers are very talented people. And unfortunately, you guys have gotten most of the talent over the last 20 years. And so we've had a real talent crunch in the electronics industry. And I think that's why they were so willing to bring uh, someone like myself into the fold um, to do a lot of the stuff that, that we get to do. So, um, direct, so yeah. developer, developer relations for, for you is, is reaching out to the guy or girl with a soldering iron in their hand and uh, an Arduino IDE or something. <laughs> on the other side, and they're trying to get the two things to work together with some, some piece of hardware that has been supplied to them by a vendor, and they're trying to figure out how to integrate it. Would that be I would a fair? Go further than, I would go further than that. Um, it's it's more they're trying to build the custom uh, board that uh, might one day replace the Arduino. Um, they're really developing something custom. And a lot of times there is code that lives on that device in the field. And um, sometimes that code gets updated um, over the air. Sometimes you have to release a new version of that product and that includes a new version of code. Um, and so we're really giving the developers the tools that they need to ensure that the boards they build work and that the code that they put onto it actually works properly because without without a properly designed board the code is kind of meaningless you, the, the code will execute in in the processor um but of course if those signals can't travel around the board and interact with other components um it's kind of pointless right so yeah, yeah for me developer relations is, is making sure that that piece of hardware functions um as the designer intended it to and um there's a lot of uh effort that goes into that both on the manufacturing side we focus more on the design side. Okay, so you, the tooling that you provide is you're doing the same type of stuff that we do in, I suppose, just software as a service developer relations where you're doing the tutorials and the documentation and you're worrying about developer experience. I mean, I, I got to say, having been a, a little bit of a tourist on the hardware side of things, um, I kind of ran into a wall where you get these kind of spec sheets for a component and they're incomprehensible or they have little <laughs> graphs. They have little graphs of like voltage responses or whatever. Or, you know, I've tried so many times to understand how to use 555 timer shifts. And I just, I still, maybe my brain just doesn't work that way. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, is, is, is that the level we're talking about or is it, do you have to bring all these pieces together? I mean, yeah, yeah, that's that's part of it. Um, it, I mean, yes, there is stuff that you have to do at the system level to educate people and really bring all the pieces together, kind of like you're saying. Um, you know, where is where are the points of failure in that system that you're designing in terms of you know can the circuit you're designing even work, um, or will this chip function properly as as it's uh, specced in the data sheet? Um, so yeah, th those are important points that um, you have to consider. So so we focus a lot on, you know what can the hardware developer do to number one understand the components that, that they're working with and then number two build the board so that the components function properly um the other thing that that happens a lot in a lot of companies is you know sometimes the electronics developers live in this silo mm. and they just 
throw the finished design off to the firmware guys. The firmware guys need to know um, basically where the signals are coming in so that they can specify that in the code that they're building. Um, and then they're kind of working on their own to develop all the logic that happens underneath so that whatever processing needs to be done can get done. And eventually they all come back together, they have a finished application, and then that application gets flashed onto the device and now it's time to start testing it. But something that interesting that happens is, you know, the the firmware people, smart as they are, are not necessarily versed in all the, the deep aspects of hardware. And then the hardware people, smart as they are, are not always, you know, software or firmware developers. And so they have to learn how to work together. And do you think that, um, so we've seen in, in the last, I suppose, five years, the emergence of developer relations in more traditional software as a, as a valid activity and as something you have to do, especially if you want to have an API and SDKs, that sort of stuff. Is something similar hard, happening on the hardware end of things? Where, where does, so where does your industry sit in that, that change? Yeah, that, that's definitely um, something that is becoming more prominent. Um, one thing that I've noticed recently, especially with, with clients that come into to my design firm, um, is that a lot of them come from the software world and they have a great idea for an application or they've been able to prove out some kind of application that needs to run on hardware, mm. um, but they can't just you know throw a laptop out in the field. Um, they need to actually have a custom piece of hardware in order to get this, this system to do what they need it to do. And um, they have no way, idea where to start. Yeah. I mean, yeah. no idea where to start. <laughs> now, we help them get started on the board side of it, as well as things like component selection, understanding what to expect when they're getting ready to take this piece of hardware into manufacturing, and then how they can automate some of those manufacturing aspects, specifically with regards to getting their code, getting their application onto that end device. And so we help them coordinate all of that. Um, and the manufacturing side is this whole other can of worms that probably save for a different episode. Um, but uh, in terms of uh, developer relations and then um, basically helping the embedded folks in these projects be successful, you know, the semiconductor vendors have done a lot of great work over the last few years um, trying to get things like reference designs out there for the community, getting uh, libraries out there that um, folks are going to need, getting design examples that can help people get up and running quickly. Um, and really illustrate a real application. So yeah, the semiconductor uh, vendors have done a lot of work and it it requires investment on their part, of course. You know, they have to create all this material. They have to make it public. Um, they have to be there to answer questions, provide customer support, things like this. Um, all those kind of typical functions you would expect them to do. Um, but for them, uh, it is a really big driver of component choice. So it can be a big driver yes, of revenue. Yes, yes. So if you're a semiconductor company, it really is in your best interest to create these application examples, especially for really cutting edge areas. Like, you know, we work in embedded AI and then um, like radar. Uh, so it's really in their, in the company's best interest to create these examples and get them out there for people so that they can, uh, get to a point where they're ready to scale into, into a new product quickly. And of course, once a design is locked in on that uh, particular set of tools, so both the, the libraries and the underlying code, and then also um, the board design around those components, 
um, you know, they're going to be a customer for a long time. It's it's really difficult to switch once you get a design locked in like that. So, a, you know, yeah. when, I, when I say a design is locked in, like, I'll give you an example. Um, uh, one of the things that we've done recently um, is working with a sensor fusion company. Um, so they, they do millimeter wave sensing um, with some other sensors. I'm being intentionally vague because um, I don't want to reveal IP, but um, they basically fuse all these sense, uh, sensing measurements together to do, and then they they use AI on the device to to infer some things about the, the world around them. Gotcha. And um, the, the the chips that we're getting from uh, from the semiconductor vendor, like you can't just swap that out and go to the next vendor and put a different one in. It doesn't work like that. It might work like that in 20 years, right? But right now, it doesn't work like that. And it's not going to work like that for a long time uh, for this particular type of product. So it's it's in the semiconductor vendor's interest to get all of those resources out there for the developer, not just the code, but also the hardware resources so that they can build a product and scale it. Okay, so this this is this touches on something Zach, that I want to ask you about because one of the things that you need to think about in the non-hardware space is whether your sales are just developer enabled versus uh, developer first, right? So this is a little bit of terminology that has started to emerge where developer enabled means that you're still doing traditional sales, uh, but you might have a senior technical person who kind of signs off or is influential versus developer first, where it's the developer that goes to their boss and says, yeah, we got to use this thing. So it sounds, it sounds like the hardware industry is a lot more developer first than I would have thought. It, it is, yeah, that is true. Um, now, when you, you know when you're doing prototypes, yeah, absolutely, um, developer first. The developer is going to be the one um, that has a major influence on component choices. Um, and if it if the developer is a hardware developer, meaning they're you know, they're actually like building the the circuit board and selecting the components. Um, yeah, they're going to have a major uh, influence on those components that are selected. Now, of course, when we're talking about embedded devices, the firmware developer, the person who's actually writing the application and the code, um, they're also going to have a big influence because um, they're going to be the ones that have to make sure that they can actually implement the logic that they need to implement. So the two have to come together and decide what chipsets they're going to use. And then they build around that. And that's how you get to a new product. Now, in larger organizations, you know, we're talking OEMs, um, the supply chain people may push back on some of that sometimes. Um, but at the end of the day, it's it's going to be the developers that have the final word. So yeah, developer first, for sure. Okay. And this drives all of the investment by the semiconductor people in the developer experience. Um and has that I think that I think that's a fair statement yeah. yeah but is that is that recent or has that has it been that way for a while you know it has been that way for a while for certain products um and for certain application areas that are really high value to those companies so like one great example um which is another uh, area I've worked in recently is in data center um yeah. specifically like networking equipment for the data center. Um, there's one uh, vendor that has uh, a chipset spanning pat back, I think 20 years. And that chipset has been incredibly successful. They were enabling people with 
application notes and um, application examples and reference designs, reference like physical reference products you could actually purchase, software applications for management. They were enabling all of that years ago. Um, I think the the uh, industry, or at least the companies in the industry that have the marketing budgets for it, they, they've seen how successful that is, and they've broadened out the resources that they have available to developers so that they're free for anyone to access. And it's not just like, hey, you have to commit to purchasing X number per month, and then you have to sign an NDA, and then you have to engage with our application engineering team, and then we send you this stuff. They, by making it public, they're really showing, number one, that you can use our semiconductor products for all these advanced embedded areas like AI, like ADAS in, in automotive, like radar, um, list goes on and on. Um, yeah. And, and then they're making it easy to just jump in and get started. One, so I mean, it, it increases that, it increases that uh, or I'm sorry, it decreases that time to, to scaling and then making large purchases. Yeah, yeah. And if somebody, if if a company came to me and said, "Okay, I want to set up a developer relations activity, and I've got an API, and I've got SDKs," I'd be coming. Yeah, to they've, them. And they've got all of that going yeah. on with with the resources that they that they provide. I, you know, I, I'd be saying, "Okay, you know, let's take a look at your your organization's GitHub profile, and how are you looking after your communities, that type of stuff." Uh, but GitHub.com is really quite central to the whole activity, right? Because that's where the code lives. Is GitHub.com the place for the for hardware as well, or are there other places? Or I, I'm just trying to think in my head if I want to if I want to show uh, circuit design or hardware design. Yeah, and, and I'm trying to think of the analog to kind of show me the code, right? Where do I go to get that? Is it GitHub? Is it somewhere else? For some things, it is GitHub. Yeah. So um, for for the actual. So, so for like the design files for an example circuit board, which 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 is what we call a reference design, um, you'll typically just get that from the company website. Sometimes it's behind a login wall, so they they want to know who's accessing it. Um, sometimes okay. you have to fill out a questionnaire. You know, I work in industry X, and this is my seniority level, that kind of thing. But the, if it exists, they will generally give it to you. Um, and then the co if there is code that goes along with it. Um, yeah, it's typically on GitHub. Um, if it's not on the manufacturer website, it's just on GitHub, and anybody can access it. Gotcha. Okay. And I know there's, I suppose, generally accepted applications that you could load circuit diagrams into. Sorry, I mean, these are like super basic questions, but I'm just kind of interested in what the developer experience is like. Oh, yeah, yeah. And you you actually just asked a great question, um, which is something I've been harping the EDA folks on for, for years, literally for years. Um, so yes, there are specialized applications that you use for circuit boards. Um, circuit board design software is a billion dollar industry. There are three really big players. Um, Altium is one of them. Um, and their, uh, their applications are like really specialized versions of like AutoCAD is kind of the best, yeah. Yeah. best, uh, uh, way I could describe it. Right. It's, it's like an AutoCAD, but very specific to circuit boards. Okay. And um, the way these these platforms work is they are CAD tools, and they eventually spit out files that you use to manufacture the product. Now, obviously, we've been talking about you know software development, firmware development, and unfortunately, they don't have any support for those kinds of activities built into them. 
The closest they come is with FPGA support. So FPGAs are a very specific type of processor. Not all embedded devices that have to run firmware or software are going to use an FPGA. So if they have any kind of FPGA support, it's usually really limited. What you're usually doing is you're using the vendor IDE. And you're hoping that the vendor IDE contains design examples or contains the tools you need yeah, to really yeah. develop all that code quickly and then get it onto your piece of hardware. But um, I've I've been complaining to the EDA guys, like, you guys need to have an IDE or something, some sort of connector built in to circuit board software so that it's very easy to call out what the developers need to do inside the circuit board software. And Altium is actually doing something kind of like that. It wasn't originally focused on embedded development, um, but they have an online platform called Altium 365. And ah, it basically... Interesting. Okay. Yeah, yeah it, it includes a version control system. It includes um, a file system where you can store all sorts of different files, including code. So you can attach all this documentation to your project and put it into a shared workspace, and then anybody else can access it. So we're kind of inching towards that that um, uh, case where you have a more integrated environment that exists between the hardware people and the software developers. And it's a natural direction to go in. And you, and you can see it happening in, in just ordinary, pure software development as well. But just for our... You know, it, 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 you say it's a natural development or a natural direction to go in. That's existed for for uh, the circuit board and like the mechanical engineers for quite a while. Yeah, yeah. And for our, our completely cloud-native developers, what does EDA stand for? So EDA stands for Electronics Design Automation. Electronics Design Automation, okay. Which is the sphere exactly. of, of activity that you're kind of focused on. Um, exactly, yeah. The other cool thing that you do, this is for one of your clients, Altium, is uh, run a YouTube channel. So this is, yes. this would be kind of a shared activity, right? And, and it speaks to all the stuff that we're talking about. I mean, you're helping with all this education, you're interviewing key people in the industry. Um, but I think this is kind of a shared activity that uh, a lot of people in developer relations end up having to do right which is a client comes to you a new client let's say and they're like oh we like we like the youtube channel it's kind of cool please set one up for us make it happen so just kind of <laughs> just kind of run me through if 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 that's my <laughs> if, if i have a client that asks me to do that where do i start what do i do yeah that's a great question um Okay, so let's think about all the stuff that has to go into running a YouTube channel specifically for technical content, right? It's yeah. one thing to do cat videos on YouTube, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a whole, it's a whole other thing to teach people to to code or build pieces of hardware on YouTube. Um, it's a whole other beast. So, uh, in, in terms of what you need to do, um, first thing you need to do is you need to figure out a format, and the format generally being instructional for this type of uh, content, um, the instructional is tried and true and proven um, where it's either someone on camera or, you know, someone doing voiceovers. Um, both types of channels can be successful, but you need a format. Um, and then you need to figure out what it is you're going to talk about. Um, and specifically, um, you know, when I say what it is you're going to talk about, like, 
are you going to be talking about subsets of different types of, like in my case, circuit board designs? Are you going to be talking about, for example, simulation? Um, maybe for the cloud guys, are you going to be talking about just one language? Are you going to be talking about multiple languages? So you can kind of um, figure out how narrow you're going to be. And then um, you also need to have uh, a videographer, someone that really understands like the, the deep guts of YouTube. When I say the guts of YouTube, I mean, how does YouTube search work? How does YouTube SEO work? Um, how does YouTube now? Now they have shorts, which is a really cool uh, feature on YouTube. And I'll spend hours just looking at shorts. Um, so it's a good time waster. Um, but how do you take advantage of those new features? Um, video is going to be moving really quickly uh, over the next you know, five to 10 years, I would say, um, to probably end up being the dominant form of information retrieval over you know google search and then reading stuff oh yeah um yeah. so there's going to be new ways that it's served and it's up to you to learn how to take advantage of that and how to get your stuff prioritized within those algorithms because they're all recommender algorithms and so you you kind of have to figure out how that works and stay up to date it's like, are, you that, it's are you that guy or do everything are, are you that guy or do you, do you i i am not the okay I'm not the videographer, no. Um, so I, I have someone uh, who works for me. Um, hey, Joel. Um, he's he's awesome. He knows the guts of all this stuff way better than I do. Um, so that is a I specific skill cool set. Topics and okay. stuff. Yeah, that's a specific skill yeah, set. I can, that you I can need. come up with okay. cool. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I can come up with you know cool topics and stuff that the audience is going to care about from topic level. But as far as how you film it and present it and what the platform is going to care about and prioritize, that's a whole other issue. Um, so gotcha. this applies to any company that's also doing developer relations and wants to get that knowledge out there for developers. And this is happening in the semiconductor industry. You know, Texas Instruments is really the the leader in this area, um, in my opinion. Um, they've been producing their uh, TI Precision Lab series for, for quite a while. And I mean, it's great educational content. Um, they're not doing a YouTube first strategy for it. A lot of that is is actually on their website. Um, but it, it goes back to the point, you know, um, they're, they're doing a video. Uh, they have a video strategy built into their customer education efforts. And so I think that's really important for uh, whether you're hardware or software developer relations. Yeah. Okay. So that's interesting. So go check out. Well, Altium, right? Which is the stuff that you do, which I, uh, which I was, yeah, I found super impressive, and Texas well, thank you. as well, and Texas in. Okay. Yeah, because it's, yeah, it's, look, yeah. Take, anyone that's interested in this, take a look at TI Precision Labs. Okay. Yeah. So that's a good. That's just a really good source of reference for, I suppose, a a quality level to reach for executing on the stuff, uh, and the video sure. thing is 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 really interesting. Um, because a lot of people think you can just do YouTube, just, just, you can just kind of do it. Um, yeah. And I, I mean, you, there are people who can, right. Those, those folks exist. And I, I think they were probably some of the earliest YouTubers. They were, they were people who had, you know, they, they had a background in, in film plus something else that they, they cared about or found interesting. And then that's how they created their their content and their channel and, and really grew it. Um, I am not a a film person. I yeah. you know I can I can press record on on my phone, and that's the extent of my uh, film knowledge. <laughs> Even and it's more and it's, yeah, and it's more than you than you said. Like it's understanding the SEO around it and how the search, you know, the this the flavor of this year's search algorithm works, all that stuff. 
Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, understanding how to how to read through the analytics and uh, and realize what's important for you. Yeah, that's also important because it helps you prioritize and direct your efforts towards things that are meaningful and going to give you the best the best results because you want people to watch this stuff. Sure. Now, there's one other aspect of this that, that uh, I haven't seen done. Um, I like your take on this one. There is a trend in the, the, the pure software end of things to use uh, platforms like Twitch to do live coding. Oh, yeah. Uh, where people just, you know, they, they show you how to use an API or whatever, and it's it's live and recorded, and then you've, you've got content you can reuse or post or whatever. Mm-hmm. Does the equivalent exist for hardware? Is literally somebody with a soldering iron? <laughs> would it work you know you know i have i have seen a few of those i will say yeah. it's not common sure um it's certainly not as common as call of duty on twitch uh but uh, it's uh i've seen those those live broadcasts um they're they're interesting um <clears throat> i think more often what uh is happening is things like webinars and maybe those webinars do have like a live demo component um but they always end up being very corporate e you know yeah um, yeah and it's yeah. less uh i don't want to say it's it's less accessible it's it's just that um it's less of, about uh having fun and interacting and it's more about like hey i'm going to show you this feature in the newest version of our product yeah yeah you know what i mean so it gets a little corporate um but you know, if you want to learn how that feature works, there's your opportunity. You know, you're going to get a live demo, and you can even ask a question. So it has its trade-offs. Um, but yeah, more, more often you you do see the the live webinar sometimes with a demo, and you can at least get some questions out there to to an expert. Okay, the the final kind of question I have for you, and this has all been super interesting. It's kind of a world that I was only vaguely aware of, but. Um, it's great to hear it's developer first as well. I, I really like that. Uh, the question I have is around community building. Um, mm-hmm. Because we get, you know, a, a lot of cloud software, for example, is, is very open source driven, comes from open source origins. So there's a natural kind of community effect to it. The engineers that work in it are always looking for communities. Um, it's a very natural thing that happens. Does it work the same way? in in your industry or is that something that your industry could do more of um yes it's just that um i would agree that it's maybe hard to find those communities but they exist um your the the youtube channels that you watch can kind of become a community it's a little one way but um yes that can become your community um EEs are vibrant on LinkedIn. Um, you have people who have created groups that have a lot of people in them, and you know you get people posting and talking to each other. Um, there are also folks uh, like myself who are active on LinkedIn, post a lot of stuff, and um, there can be some lively conversations that arise in the comments section. Um, so yeah, the the same kind of you know community building and um, interactions uh, between you know people in the trenches. Um, that does happen in the hardware world as well. I think it's just natural for people yes. who are curious and who do things that are really technical and um, they, they, they're they always seeking knowledge. And I think even at some level, they want to show off some knowledge sometimes. Yeah. Well, we're and, just nerds, that, aren't we? We're just nerds. Yeah. Oh, of course. Of course. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. 
Yeah. So, so yeah, that gives them an opportunity to do that. Is it, is it valued by the companies? I guess. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. 100%. Okay. So the company's support. Okay. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, um, you know, it's, it's giving, uh, it's getting more people into the funnel. Um, even if it's, you know, slow drip, still getting more people into the funnel, it's growing whatever channel you're using. So like, for example, if you're talking about a YouTube channel, it's growing the YouTube channel. And, um, eventually that will reach the people who are the buyers, even if the initial people making contact through a community outlet like LinkedIn aren't buyers. Um, Obviously, you know, companies want folks to follow their LinkedIn pages. So, of course, they're going to post whatever resources they can to get that out there to get more people following. Um, definitely should do it. And uh, companies want people to get into their newsletter feeds as well. Um, get into the newsletter feed. You can market to them. So, yeah, co- companies do care about this. And um, really what, what uh, you know, we've stressed and Ultium has stressed is to have a kind of an integrated strategy. You know, if you create a video, make sure it aligns with a blog, put the two together and put it out there on social media and then get it into the newsletter. And now you've got a really integrated uh, approach to using all of that stuff that you're creating so you can get the most ROI on it. And then, of yeah. course, all that stuff needs to be searchable, right? Because you want yeah. people to come in from Google search or YouTube search or whatever. So that way you get the most exposure for it. And it's not actually that easy. It's, I mean, having done it myself, you know, to have an integrated content strategy takes it's a tough, lot of yeah. it takes a lot of effort um, it it requires um it requires multiple people for sure and multiple yeah. skilled people who can who can specialize in different areas yeah absolutely and kind of hurdle hurt all the cats into one place exactly <laughs> uh, yeah <laughs> Zach, thank you so much this has been super super interesting it's a real treat to kind of get a little bit of an insight into and and it and an adjacent industry, but uh, it's great to hear that you know community and, and developers and all that sort of stuff is is just as valued. Um, it's kind of awesome. Absolutely, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you so much. You can find the transcript of this podcast and any links mentioned on our podcast page at voxgate.com/podcast. Subscribe for weekly editions where we talk to the people who make the developer community work. For even more, read our newsletter. You can subscribe at voxgate.com slash newsletter or follow our Twitter at Voxgate. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.